Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. America in the 1830s was stranger than we might think. Cities were made of wood, primeval forests towered above east and west coast alike, and the great dismal swamp still swallowed more than a million acres of Virginia. Alexander Nemirov, an art historian at Stanford University, brings this unruly and uncanny world to life in his new book, The Forest, a Fable of America in the 1830s. Neither history nor fiction, the book unspools over dozens of gem-like stories of man's last real encounters with these ancient forests. Nat Turner's woodland hiding place, the inscription of the Cherokee language both in trail trees and on paper, Harriet Tubman's view of the Leonid meteor shower, the painter Thomas Cole's top hat of felted beaver fur. Alexander Nemirov joins us this week to discuss what his unusual approach reveals about this turning point between civilization and the wild. Thanks for chatting with me, Alex. You're welcome. It's nice to be here. So your last few books have been profiles of modern artists, Helen Frankenthaler, Mark Rothko, Lewis Hine. I could go on. The Forest is is not about a single artist. In fact, it's not really about art specifically at all. Where did this book come from? I think it had been a long time coming. Uh, perhaps it has to do with just my curiosity about the American past and maybe even more than that, uh, less historically, but as it were, more religiously speaking, just my own sense of wonder being in the natural world. Even when I was a little boy, just walking in the woods in New England and so on, I would be struck both by the um, miraculous presence of things, but also the sense of a deep past, like of who was here before me. So maybe those two things come together in this book for me. Mm, yeah. What, what about the 1830s particularly? You know, I can't imagine you were walking through the forest as a little boy feeling connection uh, to 1834. <laughs> right. It was a hunch, I think, maybe 10 years ago or so that uh, if I wanted to write about trees, which I did, uh, I, I, I might pick a decade that was just poised at a moment when those sort of wild primeval forests of America were still there in, in, in memory as much as in reality, but also were disappearing. So a good fulcrum decade. But one question of the book is if you cut down a tree, does it, is there something correspondingly lost in the human? And well, if you cut down great swaths of trees, if there is no such thing as a forest at a certain point, does a forest within us then cease to exist too? A forest in the sense of a mystery, let's say, the mystery of who we are. So what did you find was so fulcrum-like about the 1830s? Like, paint us a picture about what changes in this decade. Well, it's, it's both, um, as I say, when there are stretches of wild forests still there, but it's also the decade of the axe and of uh, Andrew Jackson, and it's uh, of progress, and it's also a decade when 
somewhat between those two positions of the primeval and the the exploitative. Um, it's also what they call a wooden world, a wooden age, you know, where in ways that would beggar the understanding of you or me, everything, many things were made out of wood, you know, uh, and you or I would probably be able to even know which kind of wood things were made of, whether it was the bridge we were uh, traveling across or the wheels of our carriage as we moved across that bridge. Like, uh, wood had a very kind of active usage at that time. So I was interested in recreating that wooden world. Is this sort of the the end point of American cities being made of wood too? Do they kind of learn their lesson yeah. in the 1830s? That's one of the things I discovered, yeah, specifically with respect to the great New York City fire in December 1835, which really put paid to the last iteration of Manhattan made of wood. And I told that story through the lives of two women who were murdered. One was the prostitute, uh, Helen Jewett was her, her, her name, her sort of um, fictitious name. Her real name was Dorcas Doyon. And then a Revolutionary War heroine named Jane McCrae, who was much remembered in the 1830s and who was remembered, commemorated in uh, by the tree uh, under which she had been killed. Anyway, yes, uh, that New York of those women went up in flames in 1835, and um, that iteration of the wooden world uh, disappeared forever. It's really remarkable to think about all of these cities being made of wood. I remember going to Chicago and walking along like the one last wooden street they have where they're not Mm. cobblestones, but they feel like cobblestones, almost these bricks of wood. But I'm curious how you came sort of sideways at some of these big stories, because there are big stories that occur in the 1830s, but I wouldn't necessarily say that any of the stories you tell in the forest are like grandiose. Right. I think I was interested in um, history from the point of view of individual people and their experiences heralded and unheralded. And, uh, for example, in telling the story of Helen Jewett, I I certainly didn't have in mind that I was going to get to the point of New York City going up in flames, I, which happened, by the way, about four months before she was murdered. I was more interested in her. And you know what I was really interested in was that she grew up in the far western part of Maine, which in the 1810s, uh, 20s, you can imagine, like, it's it's wild now there. I mean, we're talking about the part of Maine furthest from the coast and most inland and rural. And I, I one of the most magical things for me in doing the book was to go to the town called Temple, Maine, where she lived as a little girl, and to try to imagine her life there. Uh, And imagination is a key word in in the book because a lot of it is invented by me. Yeah, I would love for you to talk more about your research process for this, and I guess your writing process too. Um, I've seen in the past couple years more of an interest, I think, from historians, from readers, from novelists of like bridging sort of the gap between history and fiction and recreating or telling stories 
historically that we might not be able to tell otherwise. Um, thinking of like Sadia Hartman, for example, in her work in reconstructing black lives. Um, can you talk a little bit about your approach there and your decision to, to use this strategy? Yes, I think for me, I, I felt that I didn't want to be constrained by the facts to describe what I felt to be true, if that makes sense, that the, the scholars traditional armature of empiricism, which I've never been particularly good at, um, or being like a plausible exponent of, um, just seemed to be really limit what I could say or, or better imagine about that time. And so with the historical figures, the actual historical figures in the book, among them Nat Turner, Edgar Allan Poe, Nathaniel Hawthorne, people like that, I even with them, I'm definitely taking liberties. And uh, Sadia Hartman is a good example of a kindred approach. Um, I don't know. My my only goal in writing the book was to make a world appear, a lost world appear. Or in somewhat of a more precise formulation, Stephanie, it would be to take a lost world and even a forgotten world and make it come near. And near, nearness is, um, or hidden, let's say, make it be hidden. Hiddenness is different from being forgotten. You know, when you're in the presence of something hidden, it, it has a kind of mysterious presence. So I think in the methods you're asking me about, like I try to make this world if you like, appear in its hiddenness. That may seem like uh, coy, but I think what I mean is I didn't want to make like a full-on costume drama of the 1830s. I mean, that would be presumptuous and a little vulgar, frankly. But I wanted to conjure the way all of my scenes and my figures, whether I've invented them out of whole cloth or, as I say, use figures who really did live then, and relied on my research about what they were doing. I wanted them to kind of be very vivid, but also kind of evanescent at the same time, you know? I think a really good example of that, that you bring up in part two, the tavern to the traveler. In the last section, an oak bent sideways, you talk about Cherokee trail markers. So I was wondering if you might actually read two paragraphs, if you have a copy handy. Hmm. I've actually never read any of it out loud, so here goes. Let's see. The language of their forced march can be read in the landscape today, a language of trees. In Monterey, Tennessee, an oak bends over sideways only a few feet off the ground, swerving like a back-flipping diver for about eight feet before suddenly rising straight up, the bowl displaced far from the roots. Near Fayette, Missouri, off County Road 208, another oak bends in similar fashion. These are, in a phrase, culturally modified trees, or trail trees, as they are also called, that can be found in numerous examples across the eastern U.S. and other places. In the southeast, many of these trees apparently date from the 1830s and 1840s, the time of the Cherokee Trail of Tears. The Cherokee made them by bending a tree when it was a sapling. 
and then securing it in its new position with a vine, weighted rock, or strips of rawhide. The bent tree over time became a pointer in the woods, a directional indicator designating a place of water, caves, or shelter, or simply the way forward. The trees were so striking, sometimes with doubled trunks, sometimes when they bent and touched the ground with two systems of roots, that they could not be missed, like the artifacts discovered recently in the Tennessee woods at a site where Cherokee camped for several months in 1838 on their forced trek west, the trees mark a moment of time. But when the campsite was discovered in 2012, it was covered by generations of leaves, moss, straw, and other forest litter, whereas the trail trees are themselves a kind of nature. They make a scattered alphabet distributed along a straggling trace where some 4,000 people died of dehydration, tuberculosis, and whooping cough. Diagrammed on a page, a trail tree in its evolution from sapling to deflected age resembles a set of characters, the legend of itself told in mysterious script. Spread on the track between Georgia and Oklahoma, they make a moving memorial, a set of road signs whose once helpful guidance has become, after the fact, a cenotaph for the suffering. Thank you. I think it's interesting, too, that this passage comes in the discussion of a portrait of Sequoia and his syllabary of the Cherokee language. Can you talk about those trail markers and what your research into something like that looks like, given that the historical records we have for the Cherokee are quite different from other written records or where the written records we have are compromised by the writers? Yes, I think you say research, but in a way, and, and of course there is research, you know, finding articles, as you might imagine, and then discovering the location of these trees, um, which incidentally, in, in return for permission to reproduce a good photograph of one of them in the book, the location of it was not um, disclosed because to disclose the location is to risk damage or harm to these things. So um, they're powerful in their obscurity and in, in their unknown locations or secret locations. Uh, but I think research is one word, but maybe poetry is another because I think I was really struck by the relationship between the Cherokee alphabet in the painting of sequoia that you've mentioned and then the shape the kind of hieroglyphic shape of these trees in the wild and since the book generally is interested in the relation between words and world or between if you like nature and language and you know acknowledges the falling off where we just have these kind of bitter cheap approximations, namely our words, to try to indicate the splendor of what we see and indeed of who we are. Uh, I'm interested in these kind of magical or poetic rhymes or uh, agreements between uh, script and world, and I think that's what drew me to that whole story. My father was a poet and he used to say that poetry is the art of getting something right in language. That makes sense to me. I think uh, 
I'm about to teach a course on Van Gogh in the spring. I've been working it all out, 20 lectures, like wall-to-wall -wall Van Gogh, Van Gogh all the time. You know, the idea of the course is that those paintings make the world in its ecstatic um, present tense visible to us. And there's a kind of um, mania and glory, almost overwhelming, forbidding, terrifying, one might even say, in that idea. Hmm. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about the art that makes its way into the book, the artists, particularly of the Hudson River School, and how you feel like their art stands in relationship to the, the world that you're trying to bring to life. Well, uh, I think uh, the painter Thomas Cole, uh, who is often a judge to be the founder of that school, um, and it was a very serious, earnest, self-taught artist. Uh, what I love about his paintings, uh, to talk about one of them in the book, is I guess their humility in the sense that he's trying to find language, kind of inventing it on the fly and windblown trees and um, cloudy mountaintops and um, sort of shivering figures like an equivalent in paint to what he feels, uh, which is a kind of religious uh, exaltation in the presence of a natural world he saw disappearing around him, thanks to, in the phrase of the day, the ravages of the axe. Another painter I deal, deal with in the book is uh, from the Hudson River School is a guy named Sanford Gifford in a section called The Drug of Distance. And it's about him and his brother, who was also a kind of artist, and they were very close. They were very interested in pictures growing up. And the brother became uh, a very troubled figure and became addicted to basically to chloroform. So just like in our own day, different medications were introduced to alleviate suffering and be, be set up for medical usage, but they quickly became abused and Sanford Gifford's brother died of a drug overdose, actually. But meanwhile, Sanford Gifford made these incredible paintings of distance. He was the greatest painter of distance in all of American art, I think. You know, So if you picture looking at a distant set of hills or mountains, you know, their blueness, their haziness, etc., that was his specialty. There's a tremendous a kind, of, kind of yearning and um, sanctity and sorrow and joy in his work, in his portrayals of the distance that for me is all kind of connected with his brother's death. My own brother died, if not of a drug addiction, then certainly of um, the result of long years of uh, drug use and uh, petty crime and so on. So yeah, I think I could say like art is never just art. You go to a museum it seems to be you're leaving the so-called real world behind, but actually the gambit is that in looking at a painting or going to a play or listening to a song, you're actually having a kind of radically exclusive experience that opens a whole cosmos out to you, gives you, in a phrase, a meaning of life, or maybe to put it a little less um, kind of preacherly, like a, a transformation, right? Who who among us hasn't said, oh, I was changed by reading that book. I was changed by looking at that painting. But, you know, when you stop to think about what that actually means, it means like 
there's an opening out to the world at large to you in that very narrow, very exclusive, very private moment. And that's what I'm talking about. Did you have a kind of moment like that in connection with any of the art, the stories, the ephemera that you unearthed in this book? I think I had many such moments. I'll give you two with bodies of water, which 1830s or not are always mysterious to me, as perhaps they are to many people, um, specifically like running streams, rivers, things like that. So one is in Temple, Maine. I mentioned Helen Jewett's hometown. Um, you know, I went there in January. Uh, I knew it would be forbiddingly cold and isolated, just like I wanted it. And there's a stream frozen stream I just paused over on a bridge and I took a picture of it which is in the book so it was a bright sunny day there's a little bit of melting going on you know so the dripping of the water was in my ears uh, the rushing of the stream which you could kind of hear uh, but the glint the bright hard glint of the sunlight on the ice was there too. And I think um, bridges, streams, a kind of magical connection between present and past, and in, frankly, between me and, I don't know, I, it's probably presumptuous to say of, of me and this woman, but whatever, like we were having some kind of um, passage through one another at that moment. Another body of water in Maryland, a canal that Harriet Tubman's father, among other enslaved people, dug in the 1810s and 20s, and which opened in the early 1830s, so in the Chesapeake region. And you you kind of have to know where to look, and then you know what it is, because it's the one tributary uh, in that kind of marshy space that's perfectly uh, linear. You know, it's a canal, and it's not really marked very well, and the br again, it's standing on a bridge, and this bridge is a t for a two-lane highway with a very narrow shoulder with cars whipping around at 50 miles an hour going either way. So that's what I mean about perilous, but unbelievable to see the reflections of the clouds moving in that water. So the water's moving, um, not only by the current, but by the wind, and the clouds are moving somehow in those moments where it's a, a kind of magical suspension of time, time enters very powerfully and you have a sense of present and past. I don't know why it's surprising to hear that some of the places that you wrote about in the book still exist, but maybe it's because it feels, you know, reading it, you are, I, I did feel immediately like I was in the 1830s from the moment. I think for me, the turning point was the anecdote about the top hat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> but it really does feel like walking through a lost world and getting a sense of a time that isn't there anymore. Yeah. And so it it's surreal, I think, to hear you talking about, you know, like that canal mm. in Maryland is just a few hours from where I'm sitting right now. Yeah, it's true. You could go there. Yeah. It's so close. What's the connection to you between these places, these stories and like ideas of nostalgia for mm -hmm. a lost world. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really a nostalgia person, though perhaps you mean it in a different sense than I do. I would 
think more that the places I went to for the book, which are many, are sites of pilgrimage. So in in going to the eastern shore of Maryland or the backwoods of Maine, I am making a pilgrimage, which is, I guess, the difference between a pilgrimage and a kind of nostalgic trip, let's say, is that the pilgrim expects to find some presence there. The mournfulness of what has been is not the only element in play emotionally. It's funny because this can carry over too to the pilgrimage to actual archives too. So with the Tubman piece, which is called Harriet of the Stars, I was just really interested in the fact that there was a big meteor shower, um, the so-called Leonid shower, which occurs once every 33 years. There was a big meteor shower in over the eastern and midwestern U.S. in the 1830s. And Harriet Tubman mentioned seeing it. She was about nine or 10 years old at that time. So I was thinking about how that canal, which was newly opened and built by enslaved people, reflected the heavens and what I might make of that, you know. And that led me to researching how others perceived the same meteor shower because it was written up in many accounts by odd bystanders, not all of whom really understood the thing scientifically at all. For example, Harriet Tubman thought the world was ending and she was not alone. Uh, And this led me to um, an archive of one of these odd figures who was a medical doctor who on the very night of the meteor shower where imagine looking up in the sky and there would be say 10,000 meteors falling in an hour, you know, 10,000. And he happened to be making a very long all night house call that night going from Salisbury, North Carolina to Charlotte, North Carolina, which is about 40 miles. So my simple question was, I wonder what he was doing. Like, what was his mission? Why did he have to do it that night? And I found out by going to the archive at University of Texas, actually, where his papers are, that he was going to see to uh, a little girl who was 11 months old, who was very ill, and who was the daughter of a friend. And that little girl died that night of the meteor shower before he could get there or just after he got there. When he got there, it was hopeless. Um, Her name was Harriet. And I put those two Harriets together, and it's Harriet of the Stars. We have links in the show notes to Alexander Nemirov's new book, The Forest, A Fable of America in the 1830s. I've also put in some paintings from Thomas Cole and Sanford Gifford, who were mentioned in the episode, and the photographs that Alex took from those pilgrimage sites. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>